Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And as always, we have a very interesting guest today with me is Jonah Lev. I've been aiming to talk to Jonah for a long time. And finally, today, we got the opportunity to. I'll go a little bit into Jonah's uh, background. So Jonah is the Director of Operations for Conflict Armament Research, a UK-based organization that tracks weapons in conflicts around the world. He has extensive experience in investigating sanctions violations and advising policymakers and stakeholders on issues related to armed violence and conflict. Jonah has also worked in various countries such as Cambodia, India, Iraq, Lebanon and Yemen, among others. He holds a Master's in Public Administration and International Management and has authored several publications on armed violence and conflict. And he probably has one of the coolest jobs around, Jonah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ahmed, for having me. Really appreciate this time to speak with you. Thank you. So, Jonah, can you give us a, a, a bit of an introduction yourself and, and how you got where you are today? Yeah, sure. So, like you mentioned, I'm the Director of Operations at Conflict Armament Research, or CAR for short. I've been with the organization now just under 10 years, and the organization uh, was set up just about 11 years ago. So pretty much have helped in the setup of that organization. What led me to to this, I mean, it, it goes back a couple of decades. I would say I first got interested in weapons proliferation and arms control back in graduate school. I went to the Middlebury Institute of International Studies out in Monterey, California. And yeah, while I was there, um, I had a professor who had a specialization in this field and was really instrumental. He was really a pioneer, actually, in forging ahead the, the issue of conventional weapons proliferation and disarmament at the multilateral level. As you know, nuclear disarmament, nuclear non-proliferation is an issue that's been being addressed at the international level for many decades. But small arms and light weapons as a fueling force in conflict and a and a tool among non-state actors to conduct war in various conflicts around the world has only been an issue that has recently been identified and addressed. So anyway, I studied with him. His name was Ed Lawrence, by the way, and he has since retired, but he has trained up and taught a number of us who continue to fight the good fight in his fields all over the world. From there, I, I, I went to an organization which at the time was really the premier organization working on issues of small arms and light weapons called the Small Arms Survey based in Geneva, Switzerland. Worked for them for a couple of years, did some really interesting work in uh, South Sudan and in Kenya. That was the first time I, I went to Africa. That was in 2007. Wrote some pieces for them, worked at a few other organizations, and then got a job with a Security Council panel of experts monitoring the arms embargo in Darfur. This for me at that time was like a dream job. Working in this field at that time, there weren't too many options. This was pre-high-level position, which afforded you, on the one hand, to you know get deep into the weeds, documenting weapons on the ground in, conf- in a conflict like Darfur, and the next week being back in New York or in any other capital, for that matter, briefing high-level policy authorities on your findings, and then drafting those findings in a report that would then go to UN Security Council 
to inform their decision-making around sanctions, at least on Darfur. From there, I did that for a couple of years, and then I switched over to the Somalian and Eritrea Monitoring Group, which was the panel that was monitoring the arms embargo in Somalia. That was in 2010 and 11, when Al-Shabaab, the terrorist group operating in Somalia, very much had control of most of the capital, Mogadishu. You know, the conflict was quite intense at that time. As you may recall, Ahmed, from your time traveling to the region. I remember that well. And yeah, <laughs> so I was based out of, that brought me to Nairobi. And um, I was based out of Nairobi working with a team going into Somalia, not just Mogadishu, but also into Somaliland. And, you know, looking at the issue of arms flows in Somalia, that wrapped up and a former colleague of mine from the small arms survey by the name of James Bevan. We were good friends and good colleagues, and he and I had been talking about this idea of you know, setting up an organization to trace weapons globally. So with the UN, for me and Darfur and Somalia, he was also working for the UN after the small arms survey in Cote d'Ivoire. We were working in individual countries and building up data sets that we only understood within the context of those individual countries. It wasn't until around 2012 that he and I met up at a conference that I organized in Brussels, along with a handful of other arms experts that were doing similar work at the time. There weren't too many of us. We all sat down in the margins of this conference and opened our laptops and started going through each other's data and within minutes realized that what we had at our fingertips were findings relating to commonalities and, and correlations across actors, across geographies and spaces that had never been capitalized on or reported on by the media. So, you know, most recording on, you know, armed interdictions and, and weapon flows and conflicts was mostly anecdotal, whether it was UN reports or media reports, there was no organization that was actually working on the ground in conflicts, counting one weapon at a time, going through rounds of ammunition, identifying markings, and then trying to build up that picture to identify broader patterns of proliferation and the arms flows across borders and, and across even oceans. So we sat down and you know, within a couple of hours over beers, James and I and a few of our, our other you know, colleagues at the time just suddenly realized that we had something extremely valuable. What we didn't have at that time, number one, were the resources to, you know, mobilize people to go out and do this kind of work, you know, across different conflicts and regions of the world. And we didn't have an information system that could properly organize and bring understanding to this data that, you know, we were looking at it in Excel spreadsheets, which all of us independently had been filling in, you know, with our, with, with, endless photos in our hard jobs. So James went and pitched this idea to the European Union back in around the same time, 2012, 2013, to support a global project that would enable us to deploy teams into conflicts, work side by side with security forces, embed with them to get access to weapons as close to the point of seizure or capture as possible to conduct kind of quasi-forensic identification, documentation of these items, and then analysis of those items to try to the extent possible, understand at what point those items had entered the country, either in violation of an arms embargo, 
illegally or potentially even legally and and where the transfer chain or the chain of custody that those items or weapons had trans transited from the legal to be illicit sphere and it was with that understanding that we wanted to provide that information to policymakers, practitioners, you know, national law enforcement and intelligence agencies so they could better, you know, shore up their border borders, address the problem head on rather than relying on the old kind of anecdotal rumors and information that were sometimes verified and many times not verified. So it was in our estimation that this was really the only kind of modus operandi that one could employ to verify the types, origins, and roots of weapons that were fueling conflicts all across Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. So we were awarded that funding at the end of 2013, set up operations wholeheartedly at the beginning of 2014, hired a team of people. And in addition to deploying our staff into these places, we also adapted the methodology that we have been really developing within the United Nations, which was a traditional mechanism for tracing weapons, which involved sending requests for information to manufacturing governments, and then hopefully getting answers to those um, requests to then build up a case around where those items were being supplied to. I should add that along with our European Union funding, we also were written into a European Union Council decision which directed our work and basically obligated all EU member states to cooperate. So anytime there were European manufactured weapons that we documented in conflicts, those manufacturers oftentimes, I would say more than 90% of the time, would cooperate with our trace operations and would pro provide information back. So the physical evidence and all of the results of these tracing operations were then uploaded into our database called iTrace which is available online. And, and then all of that would be used to generate reports that we would then you know, provide to various donors, policymakers, and of course, the national authorities of the countries that we were working in so that they could really you know, address the problem in an informed way. Lastly, Elmer, just to say that when I say weapons, it's really a catch-all. We started very much working on small arms and light weapons. But over the years, that has evolved. Certainly, the war in Iraq turns our attention very much to improvised explosive devices. So the Islamic State in Iraq, you know, really revolutionized the use of asymmetric warfare and IEDs in conflict and the volume with which they were manufacturing and employing these tools was really something new. So we, we then incorporated analysis and supply chain investigations around the supply of components for you for use in the construction of IEDs. And then more recently, we've been looking at drones, of course, in the conflict in Ukraine, conflict in Yemen, and a few other places, now looking at components that are being used in drones in conflict. So that's pretty much my career track and how I ended up here and, you know, a very sort of general overview of our methodology and modus operandi and, you know, where we sit in the kind of broader, you know, international sphere of information and data work. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was actually a really good telling of, of your journey. A question that arose in my mind immediately when you started talking was how come it took so long, in your opinion, 
for governments to show interest in, in tracking this and doing this work? So the first, I mean, tracing weapons has always been a priority among states. And mm-hmm. I shouldn't say that it, it was new when we started doing it. It was new for an independent mm-hmm. organization to do it, but it wasn't necessarily new for law enforcement organizations. Mm-hmm. And global law enforcement organizations like Interpol have been doing it, you know, probably for about a decade longer than we were, if not even a little bit more. What's unique, though, I think, about what we're doing and the gap that we intended to fill was that in many conflict areas, law enforcement is one of the first things to break down. And national armies fill that gap and tend to do all the fighting and and cover all of the processes and procedures that a law enforcement organization would do. So as a result, armies are not equipped, nor do they prioritize tracing weapons. So that was the gap that we identified. And so it was working particularly in conflicts where we thought by coming in to assist those national governments, whether it was fledgling police forces or the army itself or various ministries to generate that information and compile data so that you know they could make better informed decisions they, they could have more information about where weapons were coming from so they could mitigate the problem and target the shortcomings or lack, lack of capacity in certain places that they might not or adversaries that were doing things or supplying weapons to try to undermine their security, et cetera, et cetera. This was, this was, this was the primary motivation. So again, I don't think it was a new thing necessarily, but... It did. It took a while, I think, for there to be a realization that in conflict settings, especially, conducting this kind of work was important. It wasn't easy. It required having networks in place. It required having substantial resources to conduct that work and the the expertise in understanding what the weapons meant. Because all the various media reports, even UN reports that we were seeing for many years, every time there was an incident, they would call a rifle an AK-47. I can guarantee you that <laughs> EE's line for sold the time, it was not actually an AK-47 that was being used yeah. or being co-opted in that incident. It was one of the dozens and dozens of various manufactured replicas or variants of the AK-47 that have lots of different names, be it you know, dozens of different countries. And as soon as you get that identification wrong, that basically is the end of your investigation. So if you can't properly identify what the item is, based on its markings or characteristics or features, then there's no investigation to be had. So it also required bringing in people who had that expertise, which for many years was quite a narrow, narrow field. You know, since then, I think it's been built up because of the work of our organization and others who have taken on this kind of work. Yeah, I think you went into a way for, at least for me, I can, I can perfectly segue into what I wanted to ask, which is what you guys do your process, which is a an underground human led process, what role does open source or publicly available information and, and communications of groups and, and other non state actors play in your reporting? It's a fantastic question, and it's increasingly pertinent in this day and age. So I can answer that question in two different ways. In terms of our core investigative work, we never rely solely on open source data. 
And the reason for that is that we maintain a very high threshold standard for verification. That means that everything that goes into our database must be documented, GPS documented. It must be seen in our own eye, with our own eyes. And in many cases, it must be disassembled. Social media, on the other hand, while useful, I don't want to undermine its importance. And, and OSINT and, and social media mining for weapons intelligence is extremely important doesn't necessarily, in our opinion, rise to that level of verification, or it requires other bits and pieces of information to build on top of it to be able to wholeheartedly, with 100% certainty, identify that that weapon in that photo was taken at a certain time, in a certain place. You know, Bellingcat has done a really good job, I think, of finding ways to do that, and, and they certainly have done it. Um, so we don't roll it out 100%, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's just not our bread and butter. We do conduct what we call enhanced investigation, where we have a team that takes the physical evidence and the trace responses and then goes and tries to collect additional evidence. And that can be open source trade information. It can be open source documents, also confidential documents to sort of build out those investigations and bring in a more kind of humid or network analysis, looking at logisticians, financiers, other entities involved in the supply of those those items. But we 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 never would solely rely on 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 open source data and use that in our publications. We have in our publications use open source data to support other findings, just as a kind of triangulation of that information. But uh, but we 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 treat it with caveats and and, and always with a pinch of salt. Thank you for that. I think I've been talking about this subject, this particular subject for so long that people listening to the podcast might think I have something against open source. I don't. We use it every day. It's just that I want to make clear that triangulation, that's the word, I think, the most important word for me to have multiple sources, you know, confirming what a piece of open source or human intelligence is saying or geospatial, whatever it, it may be. So I think that's that's of crucial importance, depending on what you're doing, obviously. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, because this is a question I get from people that listen to the podcast. And if you can talk about it, what does your outside of proprietary tools, what are the type of tools that you guys use in, in your daily work, not just from investigations, but reports and, and, and verification? Yeah. I mean, I think. I can respond to that on several levels. In terms of our field work on the ground, it's it's really as simple as a pretty high quality camera <laughs> with good macro zoom lenses to get you know all the details that we're documenting. And then on the back end, we we consult with with various trade databases, whether it's the UN Register, where there's some organizations that. House databases like CIPRI, for instance, has a very robust database on legal arms transfers. And so it's sometimes useful for us to look at our data collected on illicit transfers and compare that with what we know to have been legal transfers and to see if there are any cross-reference or commonalities that we can identify. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, there's another tool that we've been employing that is 
really within the last couple of years, since we started conducting this work, interestingly, we've noticed the growing phenomenon of serial numbers and markings that have been obliterated or deliberately removed. I, I can't say with any certainty that that's a direct result of the work that we're doing. We'd, of course, like to hope so, but it's it's certainly a, it's a strategy that, you know, the bad guys are using to try to undermine mm-hmm. tracing efforts. And it works. I mean, it's, it mm-hmm. renders a weapon almost untraceable, except there are a few tools that can be used. The, the traditional tool for recovering marking is called Friar Agent. It's, it's an acid-based chemical that is quite stringent. It's not very nice to work with, and, it, and it, it compromises material that you apply it to. So it's not, from a forensic standpoint, it's not great. We have been testing and have just started using a, a different method that uses electromagnetic weight. So there's literally a scanner without even having to touch the item. You scan over the obliterated section and then on a computer screen, you can you can then sense the indentations underneath the alliteration to make out what those initial markings have been. It's not always effective. You know, if the obliterations are extremely deep, you may not recover that engraving that's below the surface. But we found this to be to be quite effective. And from a sort of law enforcement forensic standpoint, it preserves the evidence much better than what some of the previous tools have been. So that's another tool that we've been working with just to enhance traceability and, and enhance it. Very cool. Yeah. So what I find interesting and, and, and some people say it's alarmist, some people say it's, it's warranted, but where do you see the role? I mean, we spoke about drone sign, or we can get into that in a little bit. Where do you see the role of 3D printed firearms and parts? Yeah. 3D printing is, I think, another new trend. It has been a point of discussion at the multilateral level. There have been conferences that I've attended that are now inserting 3D printing into the agenda. So I think it it is an issue, one that needs to be addressed. It's a potential risk. The predictions that many people have made in the last few years regarding 3D printing have not yet really transpired. I would say, you know, I think if you go through YouTube, you can see these guys and now out in the backwoods firing off, you know, 3D printed assault rifles that, you know, break down after, you know, a hundred rapid fire rounds. But I think there, there is an ultimate threat there that, that 3D printed guns may at some point become more mainstream in conflicts. I don't think the technology is quite there yet. They're not safe for one. I don't think the, the technology you know, is is quite advanced enough for these to fully replicate, you know, a commercial or a military grade weapon. So, yeah, I all I can say is we have not encountered them in our work. I think they're more of a let's say first world problem, so to speak. But as advancements, you know, take shape, it may be something that that we begin to see more and more in areas of conflict and and aren't conflict. But to my knowledge, yeah, we haven't, we haven't quite seen too many of them in circulation or being used. It's more of an oddity and kind of confined to the gun nuts on, on YouTube. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. I've, I've interviewed one of the pioneers of 3D comedy, uh, gun printing. His name online is Ivan the Troll. I think <laughs> uh, he's even been named in some legal filings. In, in, I think it was in uh, New Jersey. 
And uh, now he changed his name. I think now he, his his handle is Navigobo. So he produces yeah. a lot of videos and uh, but very interesting guy, perfectly nice guy. But he made a point that I found very interesting. He said, if you look at the communications from governments talking about 3D printed arms and like terrorism, for example, he says, or he said, well, it's easier to get actual guns in these places than to 3D print them. So why even bother with that? And I thought that was an interesting point. And it kind of goes also to what you were saying, but with, with a little bit of an exception being Myanmar, where we're seeing it more and more and more for the last 12 months. And my question actually, where I want to go from here is, well, number one, what about countries that are non-permissive to what you guys do? And could you also talk about countries that you would, that you really would like to get access to or your teams? Sure. Well, first of all, I think when you say non-permissive, we need to break that down a bit. So there's, there's not permissive, um, in the sense that there are countries who will not work with us that for any number of reasons, you know, politically or, you know, based on certain findings we've, we've produced, you know, do not want to cooperate with us. Or there's, there's countries that maybe are just too dangerous. I mean, there haven't been too many examples of those because I think we've, we've pretty much worked in the world's, you know, most intense conflicts, but within those conflicts, there are non-permissive environments that we can't access. So in both cases, we do employ what we call local data collectors. Um, these are like local researchers who we hire to document weapons, uh, whether they're in the arms markets in those countries or weapons that are being seized by security forces, if these local researchers have access to that. So it's another kind of arm of, of our work. Places where we don't currently work and would like to work, I would say one is uh, Mozambique. We're currently not operational in Mozambique. And we're, we're not operating at all in the Americas. I have no intention to, to deploy our teams to North America. The U.S. is a, is, a, is a whole other set of control issues that I don't really want to get into on this call. I'm not sure if you've planned questions around it. No, I do not. I did it. Even Latin America certainly has, you know, gun control issues, um, you know, armed violence across, you know, s several countries, very high, you know, homicide, murder rates, comparable to what you might see in a traditional conflict. Our mandate, so to speak, is to work in conflict-affected countries, whereas countries engaged in our violence in Latin America fall under a bit of a different rubric. It doesn't mean that we couldn't make that shift, but you know, methodologically, in terms of capacity of the types of forces that we would be working with, it's it's all extremely different. The data that would be coming out of there very different. So it's yeah, it's like a hemispheric change for us. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, I think there are conflicts that we used to work in in Central Africa, for instance, Central Africa Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo. Sudan, South Sudan, that we used to work in, that we no longer do, that I think there's ample justification and scope for us to re-engage. Most of the time for us, it's really just a matter of balancing our internal capacity with priorities, um, both internally, but also priorities among the daughter community, for better or worse. But that's just the kind of the realities of, of working in you know, this field. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And 
one country that you mentioned in the early earlier part of the podcast is Ukraine, which is obviously dominating the headlines right now. And and I think something I mentioned to you just before the podcast on the use of of drones and and, and drone parts. Yeah, could you go in a little bit about the work that you guys have been doing? And obviously, this is not the first invasion. There was one in 2014. And how does that work? How did it evolve? And and yeah, where do you see it going? Sure. Yeah. And just to echo your sentiments. Yeah. I mean, I think for us and the kind of broader security field, Ukraine is almost like the new 9-11. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing a major shift now from this focus previously on counterterrorism to great power competition. I'm sure you've had other discussions in, in other podcasts over this. So we've been working in Ukraine since 2018. At that time, the, the conflict was much more localized in the East. And uh, we were looking at weapon systems deployed by the Russians, Russian-affiliated forces in the Donbass. And um, when the conflict kicked off just over a year ago now, we pretty rapidly accelerated our footprint there and started looking at weapons and really more sophisticated weapons that were being deployed by Russian forces in Ukraine. This was drones, cruise missiles, other types of guided weapons. And what we've seen, and we've reported on this, these reports are available on our website, is that across the board, whether these systems are Russian and more recently now also Iranian, the dominant or majority of components that are being used in the construction of these weapons are being sourced from U.S. and European and also Asian manufacturers, but primarily American and European. This presents a problem, obviously, both from a sanctions enforcement perspective, but also from a due diligence perspective. A lot of these components, as you know, are produced in the billions and millions. In, in many cases, some of them, you know, for, for the billions of mobile phones that people are using around the world. And so regulating the supply of these items is incredibly difficult. It's something that is, I think, being addressed at a policy level right now. Some of our findings have contributed to those discussions. We've identified a number of both item types as well as entities that, that have been known to be used in Russian and Iranian systems that are being deployed in Ukraine. And so those have contributed to some of the sanction package decisions in the European Union as well as some of the decision-making that's happening in Washington, whether it's, you know, Department of Commerce, as well as the companies and, and industry actors that commerce engages with to try to curtail the supply of these items to nefarious third parties. I mean, I should say that the companies themselves, obviously, you know, are not complicit or guilty of any wrongdoing. It's just that supply chains are so diverse and expansive that it's very difficult to track where there might be a third party that's then supplying it in some violation or not in violation onto the Russian defense sector. So that's the kind of supply chain analysis now that we're conducting in Ukraine, really engaging much more with industry, knowing your customer, identifying red flags throughout the supply chain to be able to make more prudent decisions about who you sell to, where you sell, and all of the risk factors associated with those transactions. We're, we're not going to fully eliminate the issue by any means. It's, it's an impossible test. But I think there's, there's, there's certainly you know, some significant cases out there that 
we could focus in on identifying and and make tangible differences and and at least make it that much more difficult for you know certain companies and the Russian defense sector to procure the items that, that it needs to sustain and bolster uh, its warfighting machine. Thank you for that because I think a lot of people don't understand that or how complex. I mean, supply chain risk has been now a very hot item. In, in I think a lot of the conversations go towards semiconductors, but this you know, other parts uh, towards that too, and upstream and downstream. What I wanted to ask you was, I mean, you've been doing this work now for a long time. Is there something that keeps you up at night? Well, considering that I'm overseeing about, give or take, 40 uh, staff members, I think it's really the, the security of my staff more than anything else. The safety and security of my staff, that's our top priority. There's no piece of information, data, or, or webin, or documentation seed, or training workshop conference that is worth any loss of life. So that, of course, is you know maybe my primary concern or worry at night. We certainly have you know pretty solid protocols in place to you know mitigate those risks. Um, so I, I feel confident in those systems. But you never know; it's dangerous work. You know, journalists are getting killed in, in conflicts, you know, year after year, and it's not a very different environment to what we're operating in. Yeah, otherwise, you know, I think my my concerns tend to be more general about just, yeah, the survival of our organization and, you know, what the future holds. And But in that sense, I think more universal concerns and just about the work. I think it's quite upsetting what's happening across the world today. You know, we're, you and I were in, in that sense, sort of in the same business of trying to make sense of it all and, and convey those mindings out to the general public. But it's, you know, there's good stories to tell, but I guess when your work sort of centers around the negative stories out there and and and, and all of the giant displacement, et cetera, that we see in wars, it weighs on you, especially after, you know, doing it for so many years. So that's, that's something that that I think continuously sits sits on my mind while I have you know that time to kind of think about and reflect. So there's something that I wanted to ask you about, which you just mentioned there. But there's another question that I wanted to ask before that, which is Ukraine related. When the decisions were made earlier in the in the conflict to supply Ukraine with anti-tank weapons and now more and more and more advanced. Uh, weapon systems. There was, particularly in the US, a lot of voices going up, hey, these weapons are logically going to be diverted. I say that in quotation marks. Do you see that happening? Is there any evidence to see that happening? And and what is your opinion from from your experience? Yeah, this is a big question in Washington and, and throughout capitals in Europe, I think for very good reason. The U.S. in particular, I think, learned a lot of lessons from their engagements in Afghanistan and Iraq, certainly experienced blowback in terms of diversion. Whether they learned those lessons and have incorporated them into new planning and strategies around Ukraine, I think, um, remains to be seen. But I can say, you know, a year in, in terms of the evidence, or at least what we've seen, we have not seen that diversion, diversion taking place. 
Having said that, I think there's a great possibility, almost a, with certainty, that a certain extent of these items will be diverted down the road. I mean, Ukrainians are supplying civilian forces with weapons, understandably, and just the, the, the volume, the sheer volume, and also the types of weapons of concern that the U.S. has supplied to Ukraine requires, I think, a you know, really a new level of monitoring, compliance, perhaps even conditionalities imposed on the Ukrainians to ensure that those weapons are not diverted and remain in national stocks. I think that so far there have been some initiatives undertaken both by the Biden administration, but also by Zelensky and the Ukrainian authorities to safeguard these weapons. It should also be noted that in comparison to other conflicts where the U.S. has played a role in supplying weapons. The Ukrainians are a formidable force, have you know pretty advanced capacities and infrastructure. And so I think in some cases, I think have systems in place that some other countries in other conflicts might not have to secure those weapons. It doesn't mean that the, 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 the situation won't occur, but there may be some systems in place that would allow for detection. But as of now, a year in, let's say, uh, we haven't seen it. We're obviously continuing to, you know, monitor in not just around Ukraine, but but also in other global operations. I mean, I think one issue of concern that the U.S. State Department is is looking at is the potential for Russian forces to seize U.S. supplied weapons from the Ukrainians, and then as a kind of false flag propaganda tool to then supply those weapons into other conflicts overseas to then demonstrate that there's blowback or a spillover from U.S. supplied weapons that have been sent to Ukraine are now showing up in Libya or now showing up in Mali, where, you know, Russia has has a delible footprint and the, the ability to, to supply weapons on top of those that they may already be supplying to whichever force. So that's something we're also keeping an eye on. So, you know, we're, we're certainly keeping an eye on, on Ukraine, but but also looking at our other areas of operation, you know, further afield to see if some of these weapons might end up popping up in those theaters. That was actually my second question on that part, but you answered it. But I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned, which is at large what worries you and the work that you do. It's something that I've talked about in this podcast before. I haven't spoken to anybody like yourself yet, so, so I'm, I'm burning to ask this question, which is, how do you guys deal with PTSD, trauma that, that people can either get through their research, vicarious trauma or trauma from the work on the ground? Could you go into that? Do you have protocols, do you systems or? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, staff wellness is, is extremely important. And, and I think even outside of our organization, it's, it's a growing field and something that, you know, we've been studying and, and, and looking at more closely for the benefit of our staff. There have been incidents, not too many, where certain staff have, have undergone really kind of critical situations that, that required professional assistance afterwards. And, you know, we, of course, provide support in them obtaining that and, and give the, the, the flexibility that, that, you know, that they may need to take time away. We also, by the way, have a pretty generous leave policy. So we, we do encourage our staff, you know, even after a routine field mission, which 
may have been completely mundane, but you after a while start to take for granted that even conducting a field mission over a two-week period in a place dealing with weapons, even if there's no real like catastrophic incident, it can wear on you over time. And so we really try to encourage our staff, apart from, you know, the the actual clinical sessions or counseling that they might get after like a serious incident is also to take the time that they need after those missions to like be at home, be with their loved ones, kick back, take days off. You know, we all, as a staff, we all work remotely and we travel a lot, but we also do value the time that we have with our families or friends and try to encourage staff to, to take breaks when they need them. Yeah. I mean, apart from that, I think, you know, there's, there's nothing really formal within the car structure that we offer, but as soon as there's any kind of inkling of trauma or PTSD associated with work, yeah, we take that very seriously and, you know, always support whatever kind of services that person might need, as well as our own time. Even today, literally, I had a conversation for an hour and had to put another meeting on hold with a staff member who was going through some issues that were partly related to work, partly not, but you know, it all gets conflated after a while because we're, we're just subjecting ourselves to intense environments that, that heighten what would be normal stresses in life. It, it kind of raises that and, and brings those to a, a bit of bit more of the surface and, and expresses themselves. In, in different ways. So, you know, we, we also really invest time in, in talking through our, talking to our staff and, and talking through those issues when they do arise. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think uh, people don't understand, as you said, I, I think that's a perfect example by when you travel to these places, you are tense, right? And even if nothing happens, that tension doesn't just go away. Right. It, it sticks with you and it sits with you. So even when you travel back, and I think that's something people underestimate that, like, how can powder can wear you down over time? But if somebody would be interested, it's a question I always ask people on the podcast is what advice would you give a young person that wants to get into this field in this industry that you're in? And yeah, you know, what career advice or just personal development advice would you give? Yeah, I think that, so look, we have, our staff has a range of skills and backgrounds and also not all of our staff goes into the field and does the kind of field documentation work. If, if that's what you're interested in, I would say the common denominator is there's, there's very few people out there who have like weapons, technical experience coupled with field experience. And, and diplomatic experience. So marrying those things together is very difficult. So we tend now to hire people who can demonstrate that you can drop them out of a helicopter in any conflict and they can hit the ground running. They have the kind of veracity and the resources and capacity at their disposal to facilitate and make the kind of connections and network that they need to get the meetings present the, the information that is needed to establish access, form trusted relationships with national partners. And then we conduct the training to show them how to properly safely handle weapons, how to properly document them. You know, we do have SAP obviously that come in with, with some weapon technical intelligence background, but I would say for the most part, you know, we've hired journalists. Of course, they have that background 
you know, running around these these places and and getting information, conducting investigations. So that background is kind of similar. We do have some former military who, yeah, oftentimes they have the the, the weapon experience, but may not necessarily have the diplomatic experience. Some of them do, some of them don't. So it's it's usually a bit of a hodgepodge. But in either case, you know, we foster that development, trying to develop the full spectrum of skills that are required to do this work, which is not only going into conflicts to document weapons, but it's being able to take that information, understand it, translate it into products that can affect change and impact decision-making at very high levels, at the policy level. So, and then going to actual international forums and conferences and presenting on the work that you've done. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing I think more impactful or more kind of genuine than someone who has actually just come from a place of conflict and then brought that information to a conference and is presenting on that rather than someone who's been sort of studying it from a more academic or, or research perspective from afar. It's certainly the, the kind of feedback that we get from policymakers and other practitioners who are doing similar work, you know, may not get the kind of access that we get in the areas that we work, really, really uh, appreciate the information and data that we're able to present and inform, you know, the conversations and debates around what are the answers to these problems and conflicts that, that we're all working towards solving. Thank you so much for that. I think because it's such a yeah unique job and uh, work that you guys do, I think for a lot of young people, I think, especially people that follow what we do and, you know, engage and send me messages, I know they're super interested in work that you do. And, and I get questions like, hey, for a lot of military people or other government people, like, hey, how do I make that switch? And how do I go into it? So, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point that from that perspective, Thank you for, for everything, because I, I really appreciate you going into this and, and, and it was so clear. I wanted to ask you, again, a question that I always ask people um, towards the end of the podcast, any cultural recommendations? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching at the moment, if any? In, in, my, in my free time, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of jazz music. I'm, All right. you know, <laughs> I, I, I say that sort of jokingly, but I'm serious. I mean, honestly, yeah, in my free time, I, I really, I try to kind of back away from, from the subject matter, but you know, in all seriousness, yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I, I spend a lot of time on social media and probably looking at a lot of similar profiles, including your own. Yeah. I, uh, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of, of, you know, it's, I, I would say Given the limited time that I have right now, I would just say that I'm 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 really just trying to keep up with the news. So you know, I'm not I haven't been listening to too many podcasts or online, yeah, sort of the more obscure you know news services. Yeah, I, I frankly just don't have too much time for it. And and in my free time, I try to kind of live a more like peaceful and balanced existence with my family and cook food, listen to music, and yeah, trying to kick back a bit. You know, that's just me. But I can come back to you with some good recommendations from, you know, my maybe my younger colleagues who, you know, are are really putting themselves out there and, you know, <laughs> absorbing <laughs> all, you know, but now, you know, having now done this for like 
really, you know, 15 plus years, um, I've tried to strike a bit more of a balance. So, you know, my work just comprises so much of my time. That's maybe not exactly the answer that you were looking for, but, but that's, uh, that's where no, that's no, it's, 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 I, I like it actually. <laughs> I like it. That I, I, I think the, the, yeah, the more demanding and interesting the work, the more you don't really do anything in your right. free time. Right. <sighs> Like, I think for myself, I don't really engage with anything in my free time that, that has to do with my work. So I unplug and yeah. I do silly things and, and watch silly stuff. And, you know, so it's not really uh, yeah, something that, that I do myself. But Joda, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and your insights. I really appreciate it. But I, I now ask a question. Do you have a question for me? <laughs> um yeah, I guess if there's if there was one country in the world that that you've been sort of studying or looking at or discussing with your your partners, and you had the opportunity to to work in that country, where would that be, and 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 why? Oh wow, that's a great question. I think to to say just one country would be, I would be lying, but. I think if I have to pick maybe more than one, I would say Ukraine, number one, because like my personal research interests around, you know, COVID action, special operations and PMCs and all, all those kind of things. I think the Ukraine is a hotbed for different groups and ideologies that mixed and have are sometimes aligned and the next day they are not. And, so that I find absolutely fascinating. So that's something I really, and, and I, if somebody asks me what sets us apart to the work that we do and what we do well online as well as what we do offline, I think anything regarding irregular warfare is something that, that I think we do well and, and we are very interested. That's, that's one I would say on Ukraine. Secondly, I would say, and maybe it's a bit obscure, but it's because there's just not that much information about it. I would love to cover Western Sahara more. And that's purely because there's rumors and there's things that I read, and I don't know if I should repeat them, the rumors, but because I don't know if the veracity of them, because I haven't been able to, to double check this or any other sources. But yeah, Western Sahara is some is a country that I find extremely interesting, and or South Morocco, depending on who you ask, I guess. So yeah, that's that's another country that I find interesting, and and then and I didn't put and I put this kind of like number three, but that's because already I do work there, which is Somalia, where I was born. So that's obviously that has yeah. a big place in my heart, and that will uh, yeah that will stick with me till the day that I leave this world. So. So that's always, I, every time something there is around Somalia that I can do, that I can have a positive impact on, I, I, I jump on that. Ahmed, I should have included in my sort of intro that Somalia was actually our first country of operation for comfort armor research. And I mean, basically because I'm, I I'm had, aware actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I had yeah. experience there. So it was, you know, we, we were pure in those early days and even so now our work was so opportunistic. And we basically just mm -hmm. worked wherever we had those networks in place. And since I had been working in Somalia, it was just kind of a carryover from, from previous work. 
But yeah, I, I love Somalia. I've been living in Nairobi, you know, nearby for, for many years now. And yeah, it's always a pleasure going back and, and, and working with, with the folks there. It's got a special place in my heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting place. And I think also often misunderstood by people who don't know it's like you and I know it. And that's something that you mentioned on Mozambique. I might be able to offer your help on that one if you guys want to do something there. Okay, uh, I'll smile up with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it is actually a very interesting place. And, and I think it, it really resembles, I remember in 2015, a friend of mine invited me to, to Mozambique to, to accompany him on counter poaching work. And he was just like, if you can get yourself here, you know, you can tag along. So I went with him and we were talking. And then while we were talking, there's like Russian through the radio because they're using open channels. And I was like, what the hell are they doing here? And, and he looked at me and he's like, oh, didn't you know there's this outfit called Wagner? <laughs> and I never heard of, and, and I never really heard about Wagner in, 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 in relation to Africa. And then obviously later on, they were kicked out of the country because of like things that they were doing. But I think for me, my fascination with them started then. And, and obviously that's been a red thread through, I even like started learning Russian just to understand Russian telegram and, and follow along what they were doing. But yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I think, I think if you're passionate about any part of, of this, like around conflict, whatever it may be, where it may be. I think it's always good to, to reach out to people like I did, you know, with you and, and I love speaking with people like-minded and, and, and share experiences. So yeah, again, thank you so much, uh, John. It was really a pleasure. Yeah. Ahmed, thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you. Yeah. For, for this, as well as for everything that you do and all your great work. And, and yeah, I think leaving on a good note that we will certainly uh, be in contact. I look forward to the our future conversations, whether in podcast form or just word formally. So yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. No, thank you. And for everybody listening, if you made it this far, thank you guys for all the support. I read all the comments and I, I read a, a review on the podcast, on Apple podcast that really warmed my heart. So guys, if you, if you have any feedback for me, mention it in social media do it on 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 apple Podcasts or spotify wherever you listen or email me and uh, i always love to engage and, and to improve what we're doing and i see you guys next week thank you jonah